Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast not particularly liked, even though individual episodes are popular. My name's Corey Hazelhurst, and my partner with propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. So this is first in a, in a series where we're going back to our roots, listeners. We're going to have a think about populism. We're going to think about how the left responds to populism, think about how the discourse over populism has changed since Steve and I started podcasting together four and a half thousand years ago back in May 2016. First of all, we wanted to try and address uh, a bit of a paradox really about how individual policies from left-wing parties can be quite popular, even if those parties are not necessarily popular. Labour policy agenda in 2019, isn't it? Where a lot of Labour policies, when you polled them, were individually popular, not just in the UK, actually, but all over Europe. Uh, that wasn't necessarily reflected in Labour's electoral performance in that December election. Yeah, so in the US, the individual policies actually have been voted through in a few referendums, but the party that is perceived as being quite left-wing <laughs> hasn't been popular in those areas either. Within At the same time as the presidential election, um, the uh, the American people were voting on a number of down-ballot races, obviously the Senate, congressional districts are kind of like the, the big ones of those. But there are also a number of like, I suppose, local elections, you know, state senators, state congressmen, all of those sorts of things, as well as, as you as you alluded to there, a number of state kind of like ballot initiatives, which are, are in effect referendums uh, within a state for specific policy initiatives. What you would expect probably um if, if if the world were you know you know um easy to understand is that places that voted republican would also vote um for more kind of right-leaning policy agenda items places that were democrat probably lean a bit more left-wing in terms of the policies they support but the reality on the ground is that it's actually quite a bit more complicated than that florida is the best example of this obviously um, the republicans won florida but at the same time as florida turning red the, the state also voted through a minimum wage initiative, which raised the minimum wage up to $15. So it is quite clear that despite voting Republican, the right wing party, that an awful lot of voters in uh, in Florida were also open to uh, supporting a, a quintessentially left wing position of raising the minimum wage. You, you have this kind of I don't know if paradox is quite the right term, but like this, these two would seem to be conflicting positions between the party that a people or people are supporting versus the policy initiatives that they are actively implementing when given a chance. In the UK, polling evidence over the last year or so, uh, this is from YouGov, who put a few of Labour's policies, like, for instance, free university fees, increasing income tax for the top 5% of earners, rent prices being capped to the rate of inflation, uh, ensuring 60% of a country's electricity comes from low carbon or renewable sources by 2030. And most of those they find actually a majority of support, not just in the UK, 
foot all over Europe. That wasn't reflected in Labour's performance. But since then, the Conservatives have taken some of those policy agendas on. So this week, for instance, we've seen the Conservatives talk about a green industrial revolution. And there's a 10 point plan for that, which is a lot of it is it's not necessarily stealing the policies necessarily, because I think I think the Labour line has been that those it doesn't quite go far enough. But definitely the Conservatives trying to steal Labour's clothes on some of those things as well. Way, way back into the archives, you'll um, find us uh, kind of discussing the Overton window on one of the earlier episodes where um, we, we talk about kind of like how things get shifted leftwards and, and rightwards in terms of what's acceptable policy positioning. And it, and it could easily be that um, Labour um, has been successful in a number of ways of, of, of shifting the uh, Overton window in a more kind of progressive direction on those sorts of areas. Yeah, and especially when you think about the discussion on austerity and finances. You know, we had a elections in 2010 and elections in 2015, which were uh, the media coverage was obsessed with this idea of the deficit, this idea of spending cuts that has completely gone. Johnson in particular. Uh, in in the last election, I made a complete about turn <laughs> that the cons- certainly from the Cameron Osborne model, and and then May in 2017 being savaged for saying to someone in the in the I think it was a nurse, wasn't it, one of the question time appearances, that, that there wasn't a magical money tree, and you can imagine if if someone like Osborne or Cameron had said that, it would probably have been fine. But when May said it, it seemed to be this this massive about face. I mean, that, so if we think about maybe the the UK context first. Uh, I mean, there's a few people who've tried to answer the question of why those policies maybe, although they're popular, doesn't necessarily translate into electoral performance. We should probably point out some people blame Brexit wholeheartedly and Labour's position on Brexit. We should also point out there isn't necessarily a lot of evidence to back that up necessarily. The other stuff, I suppose, is that Although individual policies might be popular on their own, if you put them into a package, then often it can seem a bit scattergun. With the election, it was a bit, partly it was a bit of a problem of of packaging, wasn't it? That there were just these series of policies that were coming out every day. It was hard for any of them to cut through because there was just a complete mass of them. And also because there were so many, you had a bit of a problem of, of trust in delivering them, didn't you? Because it was seen as being, ironically, actually, considering what I've just said about um, the talk about austerity and how that shifted, but it was seen as actually the country couldn't afford them, which, again, is ironic, considering what the government has spent since. There definitely was a problem for Labour in the 2019 election, where they were putting out policies which were largely popular um, as individual things, as you say, but again, when when given the opportunity to vote for all of them, you know, Labour was resoundingly rejected. As you say, some some of that boils down to um, you know the, the the cotton strategy itself, where you know there's just so much stuff kind of go, go, going out there every day that nothing was having a chance to cut through. Everything was just here's another thing, here's another thing, here's another thing, um, which just kind of just got it just added up to what seemed like a fantastical wish list rather than something that was was realistic context is now different so maybe if you were to rerun that the the election with that manifesto now it might go a little bit differently potentially um as you say because we're just spending so much more money on 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 things but fundamentally there is something seemingly about the notion that when you take more socialist kind of policies and kind of like combine them together into a manifesto or a policy agenda 
once you get to that point, it seems to me that they just immediately become unpopular as a package. Um, you know, normally when when normally one of the best ways you can kind of get people to buy into things is is actually to show uh, to show multiple benefits or multiple things that they like when you purchase something. It's why um, it's why like software and things like that will always list all their features because it shows all of the things you can do and all the benefits you can get out of making the purchase. We do that with kind of like socialist policies, and we get the opposite effect. It just seems to 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 turn people off. Now, a part of that is almost certainly as you say, kind of concerns about finances and kind of trust in terms of getting things done. But it just feels like there's something, there's got to be something else there because let's be honest, like when you actually look at what what Tony Blair did in a number of areas, there were massive increases in pay, increases in terms of like what was being spent in a number of different areas, which are were very, very expensive to achieve. But Blair was able to kind of make the case for it in a way that no one else since has seemingly been able to do. And I don't believe that's just down to a, a kind of like a, a notion of, oh, it's because it was Tony Blair. Like that, like, like Blair was a fantastic salesman um, in, in, in many, many ways. But I don't think he was like the be all and end all of it. There's got to be something else that was that, that we're currently lacking. Um, which can be uh, kind of like found again. It'll be interesting, I think, to see how far we think the Overton window has gone with this idea of public sector restraint and, and spending, especially given this week that actually it's been a bit of an interesting week because Boris Johnson's given himself the nice announcements of the Green Industrial Revolution, a massive increase in defence spending, meanwhile leaving Rishi Sunak to announce that they're going to... Tr- contemplate freezing public sector pay it's almost like boris johnson's trying to take some of the shine off rishi sunak here a putative new prime ministerial candidate who would have thought that might be a thing that could happen it's all about the reset there's a really interesting ruffian newsletter that ian leslie writes and he wrote a very interesting one about biden's victory and the argument that ian leslie had is because biden had a a reputation for being moderate, which is, I mean, well, well attested given that Biden spent 47 years trying to find the exact centre of the Democratic Party and and then being slightly to the right of where that was. Because he had that reputation, he's actually also been elected on a manifesto and a policy platform, if you look at it in terms of the environmental aspects of it, massively more radical than any American president, I think, has ever, ever been elected on. And that's partly because he has that reputation for moderation. I mean, that's also sort of what Tony Blair's done as well, isn't it? I think the the thing that, I suppose the problem with Blair is, and and we talked about this on the New Labour post-mortem podcast a couple of years ago, a lot of the Blair argument, it's doing good by stealth. And the problem is you may be you what what Blair didn't necessarily do and New Labour didn't necessarily do so it didn't necessarily try and advocate a changing of a status quo it accepted a lot of the the Thatcherite messaging that was in place at the time yeah I mean I I think it's it's something you can see across kind of like in in the 90s and, and, and early 2000s in particular across both sides of the Atlantic there was definitely a kind of like a a notion of kind of like technocratic management being the uh being the the kind of the style on on the left. You can see it with Blair, you can see it with Clinton. And what they tended to do was they identified problems 
and they found solutions to those problems. But what they, as you say, what they didn't do was kind of challenge any overarching narratives or kind of challenge the like the meta narrative around everything else. It was just there are problems in the system. We are debugging the system. We have fixed those problems. That's what we want to do. You know that that can be very wide reaching. That can have massively positive effects. Um, but when you are not as you say, challenging that overall narrative, you get left in a position where after a bit, once you kind of run out of steam as a political party, um, as, is, as was the case with Labour, you, you end up just in a position where it's like, well, what can we do about it? What can we do further? Um, and so you end up with just kind of treading water for ages, which we have been. So there's an interesting book that's just come out by Michael Sandel called The Tyranny of Merit. And one of the things that he talks about in that is the the way that especially politicians like Blair would say that the the new divide in politics isn't between left and right, it's between open and closed. It it doesn't advance that argument in sort of social democratic or or socialist terms. It doesn't really talk about what, say, the role of the state should be. And instead, it's about accepting the forces of globalisation and essentially saying if you are against that, then you're somehow closed-minded. And actually what, what that sort of led to... I suppose one could argue, especially when it's this, uh, and Michael, what the, the, what the book is about is about the, the issues of meritocracy, where especially politicians like Blair and Clinton and Barack Obama as well, in sort of saying that the, the solution to a lot of the issues is, is education. So it's not say that we need to bring in new protections for workers to make sure that they get a fair pay's wave, a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. It's not about say strengthening union rights. Uh, it, instead, what it's about is uh, you you say right, you need to have education, you need to get a college degree or a university degree. That's the way you get on. Somehow, if you don't have that, then you are a failure and you look down upon. And we've sort of talked about that on some podcasts on meritocracy, haven't we? You can't really have a proper equality of opportunity without equality of income because of the opportunities that if you are a, a more wealthy family, you're able to provide opportunities to your child with, say, after school tuition or extra sports clubs, say, that provide your child with opportunities. I think you're right. And again, I think a big part of kind of like that focus on on, on, on education is very much come down to the fact that it's really hard to say, you know, we shouldn't spend more on our kids. You can, you can talk about education. It immediately talks about the future. It immediately talks about aspiration. It immediately talks about hope. It, it, it's from a left-wing perspective, a very, very easy win. So I can see why when you're not challenging that wider kind of like meta-narrative, why you would kind of fall back on that as like the core of your your focus. In, in an awful lot of ways, yeah, absolutely. Education is a very, very good thing to improve upon because it does lay a lot of the groundwork for, for future improvements. Not everything can be fixed with that, as you say, you know, in, in and of itself, it doesn't, you know, improve union legislation. It doesn't necessarily improve workers' rights or, or, or whatever. But in, in principle, a better education system leads to being people being able to think more critically, which means leads to people being more in favour, generally speaking, is what, the, is what the evidence shows of the sorts of things which uh, left-wingers tend to tend to prefer and tend to be in favour of. So by kind of increasing education, you should, over the long term, being put in a, uh, being uh, putting the country in a position where it can radically shift over time. Problem is, 
without challenging that meta-narrative, it can't master the long term because suddenly what happens is the Conservatives come into power, they make an argument about austerity and the left loses that argument and suddenly cuts are being made to everything you know Obama does this as, he's done this as well pr- pr- promoting his new book hasn't he where you say if we had a shared amount if we had shared facts that we could all agree on that would help us solve issues like climate change and what have you Obama would often sell his policies as them being the smart thing to do what Sandel argues the the issue with that is is that if you say you've got a smart policy and a a dumb policy as Obama often phrased it that often ends up sounding contemptuous to voters and you can sort of see this the seeds can't you in the the hillary clinton basket of deplorables um which she, i think she is it for half of trump supporters i think she says were deplorable and you can you can sort of see the seeds in that where these these people are almost not worth your time and not worth engaging with and one of the interesting things that ian leslie says about biden is that biden himself as a candidate seem to be quite interested in in people and there was almost there were no groups of voters that he was going to try and write off he was all about speaking to to all those voters and hoping to try and win them over I, I yeah think there are lessons in there for the left in that i'll be quiet oh yeah there definitely are i think i mean as you say when you like the the, the as you say like obama pitching everything as oh my policy agenda is the smart thing to do if we put intelligence on a, a kind of like a binary scale which is how people tend to view it we shouldn't it's a bit more complicated than that you know we view things as being intelligent on one end and idiotic on the other and if you're saying my way is the smart way to do things you're immediately putting your people who oppose you and you know, for, for all intents and purposes, from their perspective, calling them idiots. You may not be saying that, and that may not be what you mean to say, but that's how it can be perceived. Biden in particular, in terms of like selling um, left-wing kind of like policies and things like that, which, as you say, he's got quite, in, in some ways, quite a, I don't know if radical is quite the right word uh, word to use, but it's a very strong agenda in a lot of left-wing areas that left-wingers care about. And I, and I don't know if this is necessarily a case of successful campaigning or just a reflection of him as a actually this is what he's like as a person he he is much more grounded i feel like as an individual you can you could easily imagine biden kind of like sat like in in the american context um i refer to this kind of being sat with you as your next door neighbor popping around for breakfast type thing and and like joining you on thanksgiving or 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 whatever whilst i don't necessarily think like a lot of people would you'd like to go for a drinks with obama or or or, or whatever because it would be a really interesting chat but most people wouldn't necessarily view him in that kind of homely kind of friendly kind of way that, that they get with biden i think the the contrast i think is more with with biden and clinton isn't it and i think with clinton there was definitely there's definitely a gender aspect in there as well isn't there as a woman who's had to live the last 30 years in the public eye having to withstand a lot of attacks from the american right some very very unhinged some often based around one or two gaffes that she's made. I mean, I've mentioned one of them. There's the, I could have stayed at home and baked cookies, isn't there? And it's almost, you know, those things get magnified to the nth. Whereas someone like Donald Trump has had so many, it it just kind of washes off and people just don't notice. Just to come back to what you were saying about about climate change, there's a really interesting bit in the Michael Sandel book about, you know, we're talking about your, your shared facts talking about actually if you look at the climate change debate this is more an american thing i'd be interested to see how that plays out in the british context given the reaction on the right to boris johnson's speech on the green industrial revolution there's a partisan divide on climate change so 
Republicans are more skeptical about them than Democrats are about climate change and the causes of climate change. But actually that that partisan divide increases with education. It, Republicans with a high school education or less, 57% think global warming is genuinely exaggerated. But among Republicans who are college graduates, it's 74% think that climate change is exaggerated. And also, so if you ask global warming caused by natural changes in the environment, most Republicans say, yes, it is natural, it's not my made. Most Democrats say no. But the partisan gap among college graduates on that question is 53%. And with those with less education, it's 19%. That's true even if you've got greater scientific knowledge. So even though, even where it, if you measure it in terms of science courses taken or scientific literacy, that partisan gap still applies. And so I found it really, really interesting that it's not even that education is a solution to the issue of, of climate change, because more education means that you already believe that partisan worldview. That's blown my mind slightly. <laughs> not going <laughs> to lie. <laughs> That's, oh. But, but it's the same with a lot of the conspiracy theories, isn't it? If we sort of, we've had a bit of a meandering discussion, but just to sort of try and bring it back to the point where we're trying to talk about, about you know, populism, what have you, and the fact that a lot of, I think it's genuinely true that if you, people who are, tend to be higher educated or certainly high levels of intelligence in terms of IQ tests and stuff, tend to believe conspiracy theories because they tend to be the ones who can make connections between disparate events and join them all together to make a, a sort of single unifying narrative and so I can see why that makes sense in 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 that context doesn't it um, and it's also that thing of you know a little knowledge being a dangerous thing where often if you've got a, a university degree you're it's easier to research but it's easier to find things that prove your view I don't know I've done that sometimes in online debates you know it's much easier to google evidence that x is this if that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah, go, Aha, yeah. I now have the fact that I can now roll out every time I have to debate this with my... I'll, I'll add this to my bookmark folder for uh, the uh, debates that I have time and time again on Facebook. And uh, now I've got it and I never need to go and research it further. Generally, we can agree that how one talks about policies, especially left-wing policies, there's always been a bit of a problem in doing that. I mean, some of us are old enough to remember when pre-distribution was a thing, but it feels like there's, and this is particularly in the US, but it's interesting how often in the US it sort of starts filtering to the UK as well, about, uh, do you think there's problems generally in how we talk about left-wing policies? There the, the definitely is um, problems in terms of how we talk about them. I mean, like we've already talked about briefly the, the fact that Boris Johnson was bigging up the Green Industrial Revolution, which is hyperbolic, I think, but hey-ho, that's that's politics. But what you'll often find, on, on at least I've seen online, is that you find a lot of British left-wingers using the rhetoric of the American left. So rather than, you know, for ages, we've been talking about a Green New Deal for the UK which is, is, is great and all in terms of the policies. But the New Deal is a very US-centric thing because it was what FDR brought in when he was president. It has no connection to the UK, yet when we're, dis make, when, when we're discussing these things online, we're talking about them uh, using US rhetoric, which doesn't necessarily help uh, frame the debate in a way that's meaningful. Most Brits probably don't know the ins and outs of the, of the New Deal or exactly what it is. 
We all know what the Industrial Revolution was, though. So when you've got a choice between talking about a Green New Deal or the Green Industrial Revolution in the UK context, you go for the Industrial Revolution. But you've also got just kind of like other kind of issues. And I think the best kind of example I can think of this is in relation to defunding the police um, in, in the US. But I think this does also hold true though less kind of starkly to a number of things in in the UK as well. Um, Literally, uh, I think earlier this week, there was um, some polling where people people were asked, should we defund the police in effect? And unsurprisingly, everybody comes out and says, no, we should not defund the police. The the police are a vital part of, you know, uh, society, protecting people, all of that sort of stuff. When they then polled the individual kind of like policies that make up the defund the police movement, you know, reducing police expenditure um, so that it could be spent on housing homeless people, so that it could be spent on, you know, mental health care, social care, all of those different things, which is something that the, the US police have to deal a lot with. It was resoundingly popular across both Republicans and Democrats and independents. So you've got a, another classic case here of where the individual kind of like labeling or naming of the policy puts people off compared to um what the actual policy is about um, which is 100 just a branding issue it's a branding issue which you know in the u.s case the democrats have to not brought on themselves because obviously a lot of it was kind of like a grassroots movement but they've not They've just kind of adopted the language rather than refining it into something that's more more saleable. Yeah, I think, and, and again, there's a difference between being activists for particular policies um, and being electoral campaigners and how one campaigns on a particular policy is going to be different to how activists might want to try and push a particular agenda. But I think maybe there's a there's an issue, especially in some sections of the online left, where it's not good enough just to sign up to a specific set of values or even a particular set of policies but you've also you've got to express those particular policies and values using very specific words stuff like defund the police has become that when Ronald Reagan's pretty much right isn't he when he says you know if you're explaining you're losing and if you have to spend five minutes explaining what your three word slogan means it's probably not a very effective slogan I mean another example i think just thinking this is more a sort of uh, again a specific florida example but when we talked a bit about the democratic party and its inability to make a lot of headroads into latino communities one of the reasons that was put forward by i think it was a particular democratic congressman was don't use phrases like latinx which again are very academic phrases used by a lot of people who are left-wing and online but aren't actually used by anyone outside that particular bubble. American politics has a massive influence on politics over here and we saw that with Reagan and Thatcher, we saw it with Blair and Clinton. You can see a few people trying to make that sort of connection between Biden and Starmer as well, I think. Certainly Starmer's tried to do that. I didn't mention, I didn't touch on the, the Green New Deal, Green Industrial Revolution aspect of it. But again, was it probably about six months ago when Boris Johnson was talking about being Rooseveltian? Yeah. <laughs> what happened to that? <laughs> <laughs> but actually, that, that, that is generally a, a good point. Like that American, uh, that kind of like obsession with American politics is something you do see quite a bit on both sides of the 
of, of the political debate. The, the, the West Wing, as amazing a show as it is, has a lot to answer for, and I feel like, in, in regards to that, not just on the left, but on the right as well. It just kind of, the notion of let's X be X, ever since that one episode in, in was it first season, I think? Yeah. Um, well, yeah let, we, let Bartlett be Bartlett. Mm-hmm. Is just has just kind of been been a thing where Ed Miliband, where we decided we were going to come off and we'd let Miliband be Miliband, we'd let Cameron be Cameron, we'd let Corbyn be Corbyn, we'd let Boris Johnson be Johnson. It's just oh, caught myself. It's fine. No, I, I think it's it, the West Wing definitely, and yeah, that episode in particular, but also Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson, which was very very popular, certainly with a lot of the David Cameron set. People like George Osborne, Michael Gove, meant to be avid readers of it. And again, I wonder how much of that is because of Johnson's needing to marshal votes to get a majority in Congress for particular policies. And I wonder if people were reading into that, you know, the fact that you've got this party management, you've got to marshal votes over the line, however you want to do it, maybe speaks to a, a British audience rather than in a more European model where it is more about coalition building and working with different parties, whereas a lot of what Johnson was having to do is almost try and persuade people in his own party, you know, often Southern Democrats, to try and vote for civil rights legislation, that sort of thing, when he was leader of the Senate. Johnsonian, right. No, oh God, no, not Johnsonian. We don't want to end there. <laughs> um, I think that, that, that that's probably a good place to leave it. Yeah, it definitely is. Otherwise, I'll, I'll start talking about Lyndon Johnson and we might be here for a while. Although if you want us to record a podcast on Lyndon Johnson... And, and pay for the privilege you could join our patreon page couldn't you steve you could indeed join our patreon page you could go to patreon.com slash not enough champagne um and you can throw us a few quid every month um which all goes to cover the costs of the podcast the hosting the website all of those different bits and pieces um with the, and if you do sign up you'll get access to unique content uh, podcasts that we produce solely for our listeners which uh, we also have some kind of like um occasional um kind of like roundtable discussions with various of our talking heads um that appear on the show um so yeah head over and take it take a look and uh, hopefully we'll we'll see you there um however i will i regret to inform you that i am vetoing any podcasts about lyndon johnson so that's that's just not going to happen why because i don't want i don't want to have to listen to you want to listen to you wax rhetorical on this for for, for hours on end i've already had to do that so many times could we maybe talk about the texas hill country that could be our kind of way in it's going to be a thing now where you're just going to try and find ways that you can just talk about Lyndon Johnson on everything all I'm saying is that power is where power goes Uh, but is that even true discuss our website is notenoughchampagne.com our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne our Twitter handles at nochampagnepod James Cram designed the logo you can follow him on Twitter at James Cram Um, Dave Deppert composed our theme tune Plucky Good Times I'm at Paperback Rioter I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. (laughs) 